performers are Frank Paul's Little Bang Theory and Nick Chalice. Good afternoon and welcome to the Living Writers Show. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David and my guest today is Andrew Del Banco, author of numerous essays and the books The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope, Required Reading, Why Our American Classics Matter Now, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil, The Puritan Ordeal, and William Ellery Channing, an essay on the liberal spirit in in America. Um, He has also recently published Melville, His World and Work, and that's what we'll be discussing Predominantly today, um, in 1991, Time magazine named Andrew Del Banco the best social critic in the U.S., America's best social critic. So I would like to welcome you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ashley. You read those titles off, it's like my life passing before my eyes. <laughs> well, um, I don't mean to commit you to the dead writer's <laughs> world. I, you're right. very much a living living writer. <laughs> well, I like to think so. I like to think so. As for being the best social critic, I haven't been able to figure out what that means, but I'll take it. <laughs> uh, whatever, whatever it means. I may ask you a little bit about that. Have you? What have you come up with? Uh, very little, actually. I think it was somebody seized by some uh, strange hallucinatory experience, which in which I figured in some bizarre way. But <laughs> anyway. Well, let's let's figure you very concretely. I wonder if you would begin the show by reading a bit from the preface and chapter one of Melville, his world and work. Be glad to. Uh, this is, uh, I guess, the way the book begins with a question. Why write about a writer's life? For me, the reason has to do with the feeling that we all live by some unknowable combination of free will and fate. This feeling tends to grow as one gets older, and so there's a certain comfort in watching someone make something beautiful and enduring out of the recalcitrance and fleetingness of life. There's a problem, though, with bringing this motive to bear on Herman Melville. As he said about the title character of his haunting story, Bartleby, the Scrivener, who responds alike with maddening silence to compassion or coercion, no materials exist for a full and satisfactory biography of this man. In fact, only about 300 Melville letters, many of them perfunctory, have survived as compared, say, to 12,000 letters by Henry James. As for letters received, he was in the vile habit, as he called it, of destroying them. And most of his manuscripts left behind in 1863 when he moved out of his Berkshire home probably went up in flames in a house-cleaning bonfire set by the new owners. His journals were brief and few, and since he was not famous for long in his own time, no Boswell followed him into the taverns to write down his table talk. The business of the biographer, Henry James says, is detail. And so, any conventional biography of Melville is a business bound to fail. The incidents of his daily life, 
his flirtations and quarrels, his jokes and rants at the family table, have slipped beyond the reach of even informed conjecture, and most attempts to tell his life are notable for the discrepancy between the vividness of what he wrote and the vagueness of the figure who appears in writings about him. Today, despite the immense surge in his prestige, he remains so murky that when a photograph was discovered a few years ago showing a heavily bearded man with top hat standing on a Staten Island pier that Melville was thought to have visited, there was great excitement that it might be him, even though the photo shows little more than a featureless silhouette. So I guess that's a passage in which I try to set out some of the problems that I hope I was able to overcome or at least reckon with in the course of this book. Uh, And then I thought I might read um, another relatively short passage, this also a beginning passage, this from the introduction that follows the preface. There's lots of preliminaries in this book, but I hope not too many. When Melville was born in 1819 in New York City, it was a town of about 100,000 people with streets lit dimly by oil lamps as if by so many lightning bugs. The best way of sending a message was via a wax-sealed letter carried by a messenger on a horse. Such giants of the revolutionary generation as Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were still alive, while the political institutions they had invented remained fragile and, according to many putatively sage observers, unlikely to endure. By the time he died in New York in 1891, its population had grown to over three million, the Brooklyn Bridge was carrying traffic, as was the Second Avenue Elevated Railway, and the city was forested by so many telegraph, telephone, and electricity poles that live wires falling into the street were a hazard of urban life. Slavery, which still existed in New York when Melville was born, had been abolished in every state of the Union. Reconstruction had been tried and abandoned in the South, and the great wave of immigration was at full tide in the cities of the North. In short, during Melville's childhood, the rhythm of American life was closer to medieval than to modern. But by the time he grew old, he was living in a world that had become recognizably our own. These changes in how Americans lived were matched and probably exceeded by changes in how they thought about their lives. Perhaps the most important intellectual event of Melville's early years was the publication in 1836 of Emerson's Nature, which declared that, quote, the moral law lies at the center of nature and radiates to the circumference of a natural world that is the incarnation of God. In 1890, about a year before he died, Melville borrowed from the New York Society Library the latest novel by William Dean Howells, A Hazard of New Fortunes, a book written in the shadow of Darwin, who had long since destroyed Emerson's romantic view of creation and replaced it with a vision of the natural world created by chance and filled with brutality. The protagonist of that novel looks down from the Second Avenue L upon a lawless, godless world in which, and these are Howells' words, The play of energies is as free and planless as those that force the forest from the soil to the sky. We tend to think of Melville as having been a practicing fiction writer for much of the century through which he lived, 
but in fact he devoted only 12 of his 72 years from 1845 to 57 to prose that was published in his lifetime. His early years were unpromising. Until I was 25, he wrote to Nathaniel Hawthorne, I had no development. And from the age of 40 until his death, he wrote mainly poems, some of which were never published, and those that did make it into print were scarcely read. In this respect, the shape of his career, a decade of fiction followed by a turn to poetry, resembles that of his younger contemporary, Thomas Hardy. At the end of his life, he returned for one last effort at prose fiction, the exquisite short novel Billy Budd, still in manuscript when he died. When the death notices appeared, even people who had known him were surprised. As one of the obituary writers put it, his own generation has long thought him dead. Thank you very much. So, the significance of Melville in American letters, the sort of great American novel Moby Dick and um, Billy Budd, I believe you say um, the, the last words in the novel um, have to do, let's see, for some readers, the Melville who speaks most directly to the mind and heart is the chastened author of Billy Budd. For others, the true Melville will always be the boisterous young author of Moby Dick. Still others have found with replenished gratitude that there is a season in life for each. Um, in 12 years, <laughs> he did all that or left us all that legacy. And I'm wondering, the, I read the list of your, your books when I introduced you, and I want to rephrase the question you pose in the preface why write about a writer's life, um, to make the question more personal to you, why write about um, this writer's life at this time in your career, um, having published books like The Death of Satan and The Puritan Ordeal and The Real American Dream and Required Reading, Why Our, Our American Classics Matter Now? What is it about Melville that fits into that continuum of scholarship and thinking? Well, it's a, it's a fine question. It is a sort of a personal question, and I'm happy to try to answer it. it it's complicated, though. I have to come at it probably from a number of different angles. Um, as for why this writer, uh, you know, th there's certain artists, I think, for all of us who seem somehow um, I intimately connected to our own imagination and experience in ways that we may have trouble explaining, but that to whom we come back again and again, whether it's composers or painters or writers. And for me, Melville is that artist. Um, and as I guess I tried to express in those closing sentences, he has meant different things to me at different times in my life. And although I can't predict with certainty, I suspect he'll continue to mean a lot to me in, in, in the future. It begins, and, and that's what I'm going to talk about a little bit uh, later on this evening at a bookstore event. It really begins with his words. It's just the dazzling power of the language. And by power, I, I don't mean to suggest that it's always um, oratorical or uh, didactic. It's also funny, and it's um, it's it's full of surprise, and uh, it's it, it, since uh, I care about my own prose, um, it's an example of prose writing that uh, is always to be um, learned from. So those are some of the sort of basic reasons, and we could talk more about that as we get into the themes and issues that c concerned him. As for why write 
I mean, I, th- I think this question is also implied in what you're asking. Why write such a book, not just about this writer, but a book of this kind, a, a literary biography, and particularly a literary biography of a figure who makes it sort of difficult to write a biography. Right. <laughs> Where's his stuff? Right, <laughs> yeah. right. You know, um, the, the frank uh, and unpremeditated answer is that uh, having written a number of books that are uh, sort of basically opinions dressed up as arguments... Um, polemical in some ways, um, in your face uh, with respect to some of the tendencies in the academy in recent years, um, I felt the need to write something uh, in a different tone or a different register. And also, um, you know, uh, if you'll forgive me, I noted an interesting slip of the tongue when you read those last sentences from the book. You referred to my book as a novel. You said these are the last sentences oh, from the novel. Um, no, no, that's that's <laughs> fine, and it sort of um, kind of opens up a theme here, is that uh, critics in the last 20 or 30 years, I think, have felt sort of felt their oats, have felt free, have felt liberated from the old uh, constraints into which criticism was supposed to fall, and there is a thinner and thinner line between critical nonfiction and um, the fictional imagination. In fact, it's interesting to me that a number of distinguished academic critics in the last 20 years or so have abandoned that form and have gone on to write, write fiction and poetry. Um, and I'm all for that in a certain measure, but Um, I also felt the need to write a book where I would feel continually from the first page to the last a real responsibility to the subject. That is, of course, this is my Melville, my version of Melville, and there'll be people who quarrel with it and people who will revise it and people who will just repudiate it and reject it, and that's that's fine. That's all to be expected. It's my Melville. It's my take on Melville. But in the end, I've tried to write a book that is... Um, not controlled by the shape of Melville's life or the content of his work, but that is responsible in responding to that work and that life. And I felt that I found that a very different experience from writing what I had written before. I'm not putting this perhaps as clearly as I could. If you write a book, you mentioned The Death of Satan, which is a sort of a long essay on the way Americans have thought about the problem of evil. On the one hand, it's it's a, it was a daunting task because I set myself a very large subject in a lot of time, but uh, and a sort of infinite amount of material. But on the other hand, there's a certain freedom when you write a book like that because you can pick and choose whatever you want and stitch it together and make the argument you want to make. When you are writing about the life and work of an individual figure, although it's also a very large subject, you have to um, stay within that universe. And Which was a really challenging one here because there was so little material. Um, yes, it is both, in Melville's mm-hmm. case, it's both an infinitely large universe because of the breadth of his imagination and also a very spare and sort of depopulated universe because there are very few letters, um, very little documentary evidence. So I, I found that challenge very exhilarating and I, felt, I kind of felt like it would make me behave myself as a writer. So something like that is what I would say to your question. Wonderful. Well, and I wonder if you'll... Um, it's 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 interesting to me, too, that I slipped and called this a novel, because I will say that the way you've written it, it, it I, in fact, described this, the book to someone yesterday as, it's, it's, a, it's a book of scholarship that reads like a novel. Fantastic. Um, and that's a lot of fun, as someone who's read a lot of scholarship and um, tried very hard to 
get through it to get to the bits I wanted to learn about. Um, this was a real pleasure to read. And I and you said just a minute ago that you really care about your prose and, and how you construct it. Um, is that true in all of your writing, or was it particularly true, true in this in the case of this book? Well, first of all, thank you very much for what you say, and, and, and I hope there's some truth in it, certainly what I was striving for. Um, you know, uh, I've been very lucky, and this is a roundabout way of answering your question, but that's, I guess, what I tend to do. I got a, an, ac- an academic job at a fairly young age from which I felt no desire to, to move on, and so I kind of didn't have to do the things that were required of the uh, uh, academic, uh, upwardly mobile citizen, and um, I had a conversation with an editor about 20 years ago when I was just starting to write for a broader-than-scholarly audience, and she said to me uh, something very succinct, which was very important to me, that it's pertinent to your question. Um, I was talking about a theme I was going to write about, and she said to me, uh, yeah, but how are you going to make it a story? And I think I realized from that moment on, and I've only achieved this very imperfectly up, up to now, I think I've achieved it not perfectly, but more fully in this book than in anything else I've written, um, that a writer, if he or she expects to have anyone read the book who doesn't have to read it for professional reasons, really has to find a way to give the reader uh, a reason, which is another way of saying a desire, to turn the page. I mean, you know, this is we're all busy. This is a world in which we're bombarded with lots of... Uh, different sensory uh, inputs, and um, uh, why should a person read your book as opposed to anybody else's book? Well, you've got to give them a reason if you want to get an audience beyond the professional specialists who have to read everything written about Melville within a certain range. Um, So that was the challenge, and um, I, uh, of course, the you don't have to invent the story, at least not in a basic way, because he lived a life that had a certain shape, and, and there it is. Uh, so that was that was part of the challenge. I, I should say also, though, that um, I didn't want to write a book that would leave the specialists and scholars and Melvillians and people who know a lot about the subject, in some cases people who know more about certain aspects of the subject anyway than I do. I didn't want to leave them out of it either, and so I tried very hard to write a book that had some freshness and value for serious uh, students of Melville, but also was accessible to the general reader. Wonderful. Well, um, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Andrew Del Banco. We're talking about Melville, his world, and work. It's just my luck to have a watch with nothing left to do But watch the deadly waters glide as we roll north to the Sioux And wonder when they'll turn again and pitch us to the rail And whirl off one more youngster in the gale The kid was so damned eager, it was all so big and new We never had to tell him twice to find him work to do Evenings on the mess deck, he was always first to sing Showed us pictures of the girl he'd met in spring 
We're back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Andrew Delvanco. Let's talk a little bit about revisiting old ideas and the, the relevance of um, the ideas. Melville was born into sort of a pre-modern time. By the end of his death, in the passage you read at the beginning of the show, um, the world was recognizably ours, um, you read and wrote. <laughs> um and then the world is actually really different now than it was when I was born in the 60s, let's say. So, so this modern world moving into a postmodern world, we kind of, if, if I can, de- if you'll allow me to divide history into pre-modern, modern, and postmodern, um, and still talk about the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, that will, that'll work for the, <laughs> for the purposes of this show. Any way you want to slice it is fine with me. All right. Well, that's, that's how we're going to do it for this one, this, these 45 minutes. So in the early chapters of Melville, you, have Mel- have Herman Melville encounter the issues of cultural relativism on his journeys? Um, is it okay that folks run around naked and do this, that, and the other? Is that equally valuable to running around New York in corsets and um, top hats and in t- talking in tea rooms? Um, are those this, are those equally valid, or is one developmentally less? Um, at the you know it's a, a lower place on the development scale. I'm I am not speaking so right. well today. I'm afraid. And then you also have him encounter this notion of women as sexually exciting and excited without being wanton, which was again a very different sort of notion than what was wandering around um, Puritan New England, than what was wandering around antebellum New York. I mean, all uh, any of the 19th century. Um, and then you also have him running away to sort of paradise, um, which is what we do currently in our sort of um, you know, tourists, let's let's go to let's go to paradise for a holiday and escape our modern troubles. So a lot of those themes are themes that are very rel- pertinent today. And I'm wondering, you mentioned in your earlier books that um, they were sort of opinion thinly disguised as scholarship. I think is how you put it. And this is you you're making an attempt to be far more true to Melville and his life. Yet the themes are also themes, I think, that perhaps you might want to point to as important ones today. Will you speak about the ways in which that works? No, absolutely. For you? And that's the it's it's I strove so it wouldn't be an either or, but rather a, a both and. That is, on the one hand, try to be faithful to the just offer faithful, uh, recognizable, uh, responsible descriptions of the world that Melville was living in then, but at the same time to extract from his work and his imagination something that connects to us now. And I frankly think that that's what all living scholarship really needs to do. I mean, Emerson, Melville's contemporary, said famously enough, every generation must write its own books. Um, And perhaps, you know, one way to cut through all the uh, lengthy discussions that professors like to engage in about what's a classic and what's not a classic is to say there are certain writers who seem to compel each every generation to come to terms with them in a, in a new way. And I think Melville is one of those writers, not the only one certainly of his time, but for me, the, the, the leading one. So on the one hand, um, you know, he lived in a very straight-laced uh, time, as you, as you say, buttoned up particularly that part of him or that uh, that belonged to New England. And one of the things that I felt myself sort of discovering as I went through my thinking about him 
in the course of writing this book, is that he was very much a a hybrid or combination or maybe a synthesis between a New Yorker and a New Englander. New York was a much freer place, as it maybe always has been, than Boston. Uh, And he knew both worlds. Uh, And so it was really the... The Boston Melville, I think, in a sense, you could say, he went to the South Seas as a young man. He, he more or less fell off the off the map, off the face of the earth for four years in his early 20s and had experiences that we can never reconstruct with uh, meticulous detail because the only access we have to them are through their fictional representations later on. He didn't keep a diary, he didn't write letters home, or if he did, they've been lost. So we don't know. We do know that he exaggerated the amount of time that he spent in the Marquesan Islands for the sake of writing fiction later on. Uh, But in any case, the sense one gets when one reads the fictional reconstructions of those experiences is that on the one hand he was tremendously exhilarated and liberated to be released from the world of social proprieties and constraint uh, and you've mentioned a few examples of, of that um, that's I think what drew uh, D.H. Lawrence to him for instance who discovered him in the 1920s uh, and many other readers have been drawn to him for that reason since and he read uh, Montaigne's famous essay on cannibals which makes the relativist case that you were mentioning that that we shouldn't be so quick to decide that we're at the top of the evolutionary scale in terms of of cultural value Um, and yet uh, and this is there's always an and yet with Melville and and yet at the even in those early books which are relatively um, uh, relaxed compared to his later metaphysical meditations. He's not comfortable with this idea of of dropping out of culture, of, of putting behind him the inherited world of norms, even though he recognizes, I think you used the term postmodern, in a, in a sort of postmodern way or proto-postmodern way. That all those norms, how people should behave, how they should exhibit or not exhibit their bodies and um, how many wives or spouses they should have and all these rules that were taken for granted as God's rules in his, in his hometown culture, that all these norms were contingent or based really on nothing except tradition that if you follow it back far enough, you end up in a void. And he, he knows that. And he writes about that in lots of different ways throughout his career. Um, And yet, that's not sufficient reason for him to embrace the idea that we can get along without tradition or that we can get along without norms. And so that debate within himself between the conservatism, you might say, I suppose, oh, it's kind of a somewhat coarse term, of his culture and the radicalism of his imagination that debate is going on from the early works all the way through to Billy Budd. And so even though the styles change quite radically, the thematic concern remains the same. And as you said, um, how could these issues not be of significance to us today? Uh, we, we see them probably from a different vantage point. We are living in a culture which is where the norm is, to, is for there to be no norms, relatively speaking, compared to his culture a much wider range of acceptable human behavior in our historical moment. And yet we still talk about an American culture that that seems to be, um, when people invoke that term, seems to be sort of widely recognized as one thing. So there seems to me to be a, perhaps a tension there between... There, there certainly is, and, and I guess maybe I tried to 
address that tension a little more directly in my earlier work, but it's it's here, I think, by implication, is that on the one hand, when we say America, uh, especially in the ears of a Western European who can't figure out why so many people in America still go to church and why the religious right has a, such a powerful voice in American politics. So the word America, on the one hand, means... Um, conservatism, tradition, even anti-modernism, superstition from a certain point of view, uh, suspicion of science and rationality and, and progress and so on and so forth. On the other hand, America also means, and I hope it will come to mean that again more to the rest of the world uh, in the foreseeable future, it also means the, uh, the invitation to reinvent oneself to um, uh, to break the shackles of the past, to define oneself according to one's own uh, impulses, and or to use Emerson's word, whim, and not to be um, constrained by uh, what somebody else thinks you are, or ought to be based on the uh, the situation into which you were born. So America cuts both ways. It's a land of radical freedom. It's a land of considerable conservatism. And Melville knew all this about America. He knew both sides of America, and I think he wrote profoundly about it. Well, and you, we're going to have to take another quick break in a minute at the top of the hour, but I want to just... Um point out a place that you locate, Melville, which I think is really interesting. Um, Also, fairly early in the book, at the end of chapter three, um, you say, this is Melville standing between two fantasies of the Western mind, the noble savage and the enlightened emissary of Europe, while giving his allegiance to neither. And that that sort of neither one nor the other um, seems to me to convey him or allow him a kind of perspective that makes his his work so complicated and interesting in ways that resonate with us today. Well, uh, yes, I, I think you know this is a reference to an early passage in in Taipei where he um, describes himself as witnessing the encounter between the French ambassador and this Pacific Islander. Uh, a, a member of the royal local royalty, and in effect, he re- finds them both ridiculous. And he stands to the side of the scene and he watches it while chomping on a banana. And this is a a, a posture that we would, I think, maybe we could call postmodern. Um, he takes no position on the matter. He just watches it and sort of revels in the in the experience of the observation and sees the illegitimacy of both of both parties and yet also in a certain kind of way the dignity uh, uh, and the importance of both parties to the worlds from which they come that's of course where the intellectual work begins i mean if you find yourself floating out there like that with no, your feet not on the ground and grounded in one way of looking at the world um you have a problem as well as an advantage and um i think that's what melville's work is largely about Wonderful. Well, we can't talk about Melville without talking about Moby Dick. So we'll be back in a, after a short break to talk about Moby Dick. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN Ann Arbor. It's 88.3 on your FM dial. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Andrew Del Banco. We're speaking about his book, Melville, His World and Work. We'll be right back.
We're back. You're tuned into the Living Writers Show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Andrew Del Banco. And we're going to talk now about Moby Dick. We can't, we can't avoid it. It's the, the sort of gravitational center of your book. It's the reason or the... Well, Melville gets credited with, you know, creating the great American novel, or at least the setting the precedent for what one should be. Um, it's a 19th century creation. It sort of, you have said in other interviews that I've read, I believe, if I misquote you, please correct me, um, that it, it nonetheless represents a 20th century imagination. And we're reading about it, talking about it in the 21st century in a, a post-9-11 moment, if you'll let me characterize the 21st century by marking it with 9-11. So talk to me about Moby Dick. <laughs> well, it is, it is, as you say, the gravitational center of my book, um, although I, I think I also say somewhere something like um, there's a, a temptation to regard everything before Moby Dick as leading up to it and everything after Moby Dick as a falling away from it. And I, I've tried to resist that somewhat because he wrote some great masterpieces after Moby Dick. Also, when we tend to forget because it's sort of uh, counterintuitive, I suppose, that he was a very young man when he wrote this book. He was only 32 years old when it was published. Um, uh, so it was in certain ways the work of his youth uh, and there was much, much left for him to do. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess one could, if were to begin with this, with the great whale, uh, there probably as many Moby Dicks as there are readers or perceivers of Moby Dick. And of course, this is a book that includes, readers will remember that great chapter, The Doubloon, in which, um, one by one, the officers and men of the Pequod walk up to the mast and contemplate this Ecuadorian gold coin that Captain Ahab has nailed to the mast as a reward for the first man to spot the white whale. And what they see in the doubloon is always, of course, a reflection of themselves or their own their own preoccupation. Um, and I think of all the books in our literature, that is most true of this one. It is amazing how this book has permeated the culture from the, I don't know if this is appropriate to speak about it in hierarchical terms, but from the upper echelons of the intellectual life to uh, the lower strata of popular culture in all its forms. I mean, there's no town in America within 10 miles of a beach that doesn't have a seafood restaurant called Moby Dick. And when I started rummaging around, even, I have to say, before Google made it easier, it's just amazing. If you, if you, if you spend your time clipping the newspapers for Moby Dick references, you could, you know, you'd run out of time to do anything That's else. That's all you do for the right. rest of your career. <laughs> I mean, it's quite remarkable. I mean, a few weeks ago when the New York Times was upset with Mayor Bloomberg for focusing so much on a, on a stadium in midtown Manhattan, they ran an editorial under the title Mayor Ahab. And for some reason, they mixed their zoological metaphors and and said referred to the stadium as as Bloomberg's great white whale. I'm sorry, great white elephant. They should have said great, great white, white whale, whale, but they so said great white Ahab elephant. Ahab and his elephant. <laughs> right. So so there's something irresistible about about this book. Now, why um, is the more interesting and serious question? Um, I think it's not uh, coincidental that Melville was rediscovered in the. Um, uh, first third of the 20th century in the 1920s, but it really picked up, accelerated in the 1930s and 40s. When anyone reading this book, which is after all the story of a, um, an eloquent, uh, demonic, uh, brilliant, godly, un, uh, un, ungodly, godlike man, as Melville describes him, 
uh, who manages to persuade the crew of a whale ship that they have not, in fact, signed on for what they thought. They thought they had signed on for just another business trip to go out to sea and hunt down these majestic creatures and chop them up and bring back the byproducts of their carcasses and sell them in the market. That's what they all thought they were doing. But Ahab steps into the spotlight after having kept himself very theatrically out of sight for the first few chapters of the book. And he explains to them in a great chapter called The Quarterdeck that no, they have in fact signed up for something quite different. They have signed up to be to facilitate his quest for vengeance against this beast who has mutilated him on an earlier voyage. Now, you couldn't read those passages that chapter in 1930-35 without having the feeling that you were reading a commentary on, on, the, on today's newspapers. And perhaps you can't read that today without feeling the same way. Well, it, after 9-11, as I think I remarked somewhere, uh, Ahab was suddenly everywhere. For some commentators, Osama bin Laden was the Ahab figure, the suicidal charismatic who had identified all the evil in the world in one entity, namely the United States. For others, uh, it was George W. Bush who was the Ahab, who was obsessed first uh, for a while it was Osama bin Laden, and then it shifted over to Saddam Hussein. If you Google those terms, Ahab, Bush, Saddam, bin Laden, you're going to get a lot of hits. Um, So there's something... I think not just about the American experience, but about the human propensity to clarify things for yourself, to explain the problems that you've incurred by uh, fastening on this outside force. There's something about that theme that Melville touched on that has been renewable for every generation and the last promises to continue to be. You just mentioned this outside force, and in other things I've read that you've said, you, you talk a lot about um, inside-outside, sort of this, the U.S., um, we have this notion of individualism and, and um, some of the questions that, that the circles around have to do with um, what a good society is or how we move from where we are to what a good society would be. Um, and you go back through um, the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries to sort of explore those questions in all of your work. And I'm wondering if you locate some of those answers at all in the example of Melville, and if that has anything to do with um, some of your reasons for choosing to write this book at this time. Well, again, there are a million ways to answer such a question, but one thing that occurs to me is, you know, we haven't mentioned his great haunting story that maybe is his best-known work, Bartleby the Scrivener which he wrote a couple of years after Moby Dick and when he was retreating in a way, I guess you could say, into the writing shorter fiction for the magazines because he was losing his public for his full-length novels. Uh, everybody remembers that story uh, told in the first person in a voice very, very different from that of Moby Dick by a very decent guy who runs a law office in Wall Street and is actually tolerant of his employees and lets them get away with quite a lot and their their inefficiencies and so on. And into his office walks this pale, cadaverous young man, as Melville calls him, who uh, inexplicably and unpredictably simply declines to do what he's asked to do, the, the basic tasks for which he gets paid with that haunting response, I prefer not to. Uh, that story 
is about where our responsibilities begin and end. How far should we go with such a character? How deep into his psyche should we travel to try to find out what it is that has traumatized him and made him so completely unsocializable and dysfunctional in this context on the one hand and how far we should travel into the irrationality of the society around him I mean this lawyer begins to realize as he listens to that phrase I would prefer not to that maybe Bartleby's got the right idea that this sitting at a desk or not even sitting standing at a desk and scratching out copies all day long of legal documents that certify somebody's property ownership of some uh, piece of land far away or whatever is a crazy way of living and um so who's crazy is this is the is the question of the story and melville sees the force of 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 both that is uh, of the dismissing bartleby as a lunatic and getting him out of the office so the world can go on is one option and accepting bartleby's critique of the world in which we find ourselves living and and and, and finding some way to turn the world upside down is another option those questions are still with us aren't they i mean i say to my students when we finish talking about this uh, they walk out onto broadway at 116th street and they know perfectly well that if they walk five blocks south they're going to run into at least five or six people are going to ask them for a quarter. What do they do? Well, and I wonder, the questions are very much with us, and I wonder if you see evidence or hope that those questions are being addressed and thought about and approached in meaningful ways at this particular moment in our history here in the U.S. or the world. Well, I'd be <clears throat> a pretty, uh, quote, of a Broadway phrase, cockeyed optimist, if I <laughs> if I said that I thought things were just hunky-dory and we had a really sensitive and thoughtful debate going on in this country about these issues. Uh, I don't think that, and uh, it's pretty horrifying how insouciant uh, our political leaders seem to be and how much trash gets thrown at us over the airwaves. I don't know if you've seen this recent film about Edward R. Morrow, which makes the point by placing the story in the past uh, about the state of our news media and and how irresponsible our citizenry is becoming in terms of keeping themselves informed. And yet, and yet, so it's the day after Election Day. I'm not here to preach political sermon, but um, I think this country finally has a modicum of good sense. And I think it's there are some signs that it's returning to a more moderate, course. There are some signs that it's losing confidence in the sloganeers and the slogans, um, and uh, that uh, maybe it is getting to be time for a more serious debate about these questions. Um, uh, I hope so. Well, I do too, and that's a good place for us to wrap up the show because we're running out of time. Andy, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on the show. Um, my guest today, well, I guess tonight you're reading at Shaman Drum at, is it 7 o'clock? That's what I'm told. All right. So y'all come on out to Shaman Drum to hear Andrew Melville. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's a great slip. <laughs> that's, that's just lovely. Let's hear. <laughs> that's the highest compliment I could be paid. <laughs> Let's hear Andrew Del Banco reading Melville, His World and Work tonight at Shaman Drum on uh, State Street. You've been tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCVN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. Next week, my guest will be poet Richard Tillinghast. Please stay tuned. The Sports Report is next.
I'm sailing away, my own true love. I'm sailing away in the morning. Is there something I can send you from across the sea? From the place where I'll be landing. There's nothing you can send me, my own true love. There is nothing I'm wishing to be owning. Just carry yourself back to me, unspoiled. From across the lonesome ocean, oh, but I just thought you might want something fine. 